when you get into the presence of someone who's really great. I remember when I was in the, in the army, when you'd have the drill, drill sergeant come into the room, the first thing that would be said is, At ease! And everybody would snap up and go to parade rest. Well, what I'm asking you to do tonight is to go to something like parade rest as the king enters. The king is here among us. He says where his people are, he is there with them. We are his body, and tonight we hear from him as he speaks through the voice of the Apostle Paul to us from nearly 2,000 years ago. Here we have him speaking tonight to us. Romans chapter 6, we're going to begin our reading. Actually, we're going to back it up into verse 20 of chapter 5. As Paul is carried along by the Spirit of Christ, he writes these words. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight. Humbly, asking that you would do something. Lord, much has been done to prepare for this weekend. Much time has been spent planning. Many volunteer hours have been spent prepping. Lord, your people have been praying. And all of these things are like what Elijah did. On Mount Carmel. We have gathered all of the stones together. We have put all of the wood on top of the altar. We have doused it with the water of our humility and our sacrifice. And we have placed the bull there ready for something to happen. 
But God, nothing will happen unless your fire falls. And so I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, descend among us. Speak to us through the word that you have inspired. Breathe life into us. Show us Christ. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It is a privilege to be with you tonight, and actually it's a privilege to be with you all weekend. I've had the opportunity to be here a couple of times, and it's always just a wonderful experience to be here with you, to be able to preach, uh, just to be able to uh, to worship with you. And so I thank you for the opportunity to come. And um, one of the unique things about my life, I know that many of you know a little bit about me, uh, and I think that you've probably heard everybody in our family preach who preaches. And so um, one of the unique heritages that I have is that I was born into a family of preachers, and uh, I consider that very valuable to me. But uh, also one of the things that I was born into and didn't realize until a little bit later on uh, was a heritage of men who wanted to serve their country. Both of my grandfathers served uh, in the United States military. And as I finished college, one of the things that I decided that I wanted to do was to pick up that mantle and to serve in the same way that they served. And so I ended up joining the United States uh, Army National Guard. And in 2002, maybe it wasn't the brightest time to join if you didn't want to go anywhere. Um, I went to basic training in October of 2002, graduated from the advanced individual training as a military police soldier in 2003, actually March 14th. The unit that I was assigned to mobilized on March 15th, and we were on our way to Iraq. And so in 2003 and 2004, I found myself in a very hot and dusty place. But one of the days that will stand out in my memory, April 26th, 2004. My unit had been sent from Baghdad to Anajaf, Iraq, and we were sent down there for a particular purpose. There was, at that time, some of you maybe remember the name Muqtada al-Sadr. Sadr was actually a Sunni cleric, but he was trying to do something a little bit more than just be a cleric. And so he had devised a scheme to take over certain portions of Iraq, and he had his own militia army that wore a particular kind of clothing that you could identify them with. But he was taking over on a Joff in a very ruthless fashion. He was actually going into police stations, killing the police officers, taking over their stations, removing all of their arsenal, and using it for his militia. And so the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment was sent down to Anajaf to push back Sadr's militia. And we were one of the units that was assigned to that 2nd Cavalry Regiment. So, but on April 26th in 2004, our unit, my squad actually, was assigned the duty of taking a military convoy for fuel tanker trucks. Fuel tanker trucks across the city of Anajaf. And I don't know if you know much about fuel, but it's kind of like a big bomb moving across the city. So that morning, our sergeant comes to us and tells us what we're going to be doing. All of us begin to feel a little bit more sober about what's about to happen. And so 
we head out to the vehicles. And I remember that day perfectly. As we walked to the vehicles, it was dusty and hot, just like Iraq really is. 135 degrees in, in the daytime. We were walking to the vehicles. And as I placed my hand on the, on the top of the Humvee, it burnt my hand. So I reminded myself to put my gloves on. So I get up on top, jump down into my gun turret. My team leader looked up at me and he said, Bray, you ready for this? In my mind, I'm thinking, doesn't really matter, does it? Doesn't really matter. But I said to him, yeah, let's do it. So our convoy began to snake its way out of the Constantina wire and the Hesco barriers, and we popped out onto the road. And if you've seen pictures of Iraq, the cities of Iraq are nothing like the cities that we have here. Their, their buildings are flat on top. And so they're very, very, uh, well, they're perfect for ambushes uh, and really any kind of awful thing that you want to do. And so as we're going through the city, the streets begin to narrow. And up ahead, just, just far enough where I really can't see what's going on, I begin to hear explosions. We'd come to a We'd come to a right angle in the road, and we were to turn right at this place. There was a mosque on the left, and uh, uh, a graveyard in front of us, and a market here on the right. And as we approached that, that intersection, the street just came alive. RPGs began to rain down off of buildings, and, and firefights began to break out, and AK-47s are just all over the place. And as I was beginning to really think about what was about to happen, this all happens very quickly, I knew that I began, needed to begin searching around my sector of fire. And so I began to look on all of my sides, and nothing was happening around me. I could hear everything, but I could see nothing. And I knew that it was just a matter of time. It was kind of like that experience that you have. All of us have probably ridden roller coasters, right? That feeling that you get when you get to the top of the roller coaster, you know, that you hear that click, 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 click. And you're just, you have that quivering feeling, you know? It's like, it's about to happen. I'm waiting. It's about to happen. And then it happens. And down you go. A little bit different, but kind of similar. Everything that I had done for the last six months, year, all of it had been done in order to prepare me for that day. When I was in the military training, the drill sergeants really wanted, it seemed like, to kill off this old person of me. At least that's what they seemed to indicate by the way they screamed at us, by the things that they made us do. But everything that they wanted to do was to, to rip away that civilian mentality that we had. They, they took away our, 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 our independence. They took away uh, the way we felt about ourselves and the way that we looked. Took away our opinions. Everything about who we were in order to then build us back into something that they could use. A soldier. Someone who would care more about the mission than they cared about themselves. Someone who cared more about the other person than they cared about themselves. They had to teach us to deny ourselves. Teach us to look away from ourselves and to focus instead our attention on the mission. On our brothers. My hope for all of us here tonight is that we would just die.
You see, it's only when we die to ourselves that we ever truly live. But in order to do that tonight, we need to look more closely at ourselves. We're going to look at chapter 6, starting there in verse 1 down through verse 4. The question I want to begin with is this. Who are you tonight? Who are you? As I look out, everyone looks a little bit different. Different ages, different hair colors, different amounts of hair. Everyone looks a little bit different. But the question is, who are you? What is your identity? Some of you, maybe you're fixed on sports. Everything in your life is all about sports. Maybe you're a, a basketball player or maybe you're, you're a volleyball player. But everything in your life is focused on that particular sport because you know that that particular sport is going to get you out of Warrington. It's going to get you to college. It's going to get a scholarship. It's going to change your life. And so everything that you do focuses on that one particular skill that you might have. Maybe you're the person who's really good at your job. You're the expert. You're the one that people come to when they have a problem. You're the person that everybody seeks out when they need expert opinion on this particular subject. And you find your self-worth in that. You find your value all wrapped up in how good of a job you do and how many hours you spend doing that job. Maybe you're here tonight and you're the person who always wears a facade. But on the inside, you're just depressed. You're depressed. Maybe you're depressed because there's this deep sense of bitterness that you cannot get past. Maybe it's anxiety and, and, and a scaredness that just rules your life because maybe your finances are in just disarray or maybe you're just scared of losing someone that you love or maybe you're scared of being found out because you have this overwhelming sense of guilt of all of the images that you've looked at on the internet and you know that the person that you are on the inside, if anybody ever really knew you, they'd walk away from you. And your identity is, identity is wrapped up in that double life that you live. Maybe tonight, it's not those things. Maybe it's your age that discourages you. You know, as we get a little older, our bodies begin to change, don't they? Right? And on the inside, on the inside, you feel like that 26-year-old that used to be able to do all sorts of things. But then you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and that 26-year-old ain't there anymore. Somebody different standing there looking at you. You begin to think about your life. You begin to think about all of the people in your life, maybe family members who have died. Friends who are gone to be with the Lord. You find yourself isolated. You find yourself alone. And that deep sense of sadness, that's what characterizes your life. Who are you tonight? Whether your identity is found in the guy that you're dating, whether your identity is found in the ball that you throw or the secret depression that you hide, what have you really got when you think about your life? What do you have? You see, either you've made a wreck of your life and you know it and everyone else knows it or everyone else doesn't know it but you know it or your life is headed for a wreck. You know why? Because all of us are a mess. 
inside. All of us are. Now you might be sitting there tonight thinking, you know what, Luke, my my life's not that big of a mess. But it's because you're focusing on the things that you can control and not focusing on the things that are inside. See, the problem is we have a mess on the inside. It may look really clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's dark, black, like coal. See, our primal passions turn really good things, things that God created, turns those things into worshipful things. And we begin to, to worship the creation instead. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 at the beginning of this book, and he says to these people, he says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. So whether we're wrapped up in shopping or hunting or gaming or family get-togethers, whatever it is that we're wrapped up in, these things can become evil things when we place more value on these things than we place on God. We tie to our idols, we we call them different kinds of stores. It's called the mall. We fall down and we exult in worship when we see the big score. We give hours and hours of devotion and discipline to that, to that trigger pull. Being able to look through that scope correctly. But in the end, what do we really have? It's a vapor, isn't it? Not what Solomon says? How many of you that are 60, 70, you look back and you say, you know, those 60, 70 years, they pass just like that. It's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone and there's nothing we can do about it. The life that we have right now is precarious. It's precarious because all of us have this this tendency to wander into sin. I had a friend when I was in college. Everybody loved him. He was a godly guy, seemed to be. He was a Bible major. In fact, his heart was set on being a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary in Africa. And so everything in his life was was funneled to making sure that that happened. And all the while, unbeknownst to all of his closest friends, he struggled with an addiction to pornography. That addiction to pornography destroyed his life. That secrecy, that sin led to further sin and more sin and more sin. And now as we sit here tonight, he's serving the better part of 10 years in a federal penitentiary. Sin can destroy your life. Because we're all on the very verge of wrecking our lives. Paul describes our relationship to God before we come to Christ as this. He says, no one is righteous, not one person. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 
The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not just Muslim people. That's not just atheist people or Wiccan people. That's all of us before Christ. No one did good. All of the good things that we could prop up, all of the things that we could look to and say, you know what, I've done this and that. I've gone to church this many times. I've given this amount of money as we look at our return at the end of the year. and We look at all of the tithes that we've given. We say, I've done this for God and I've done that for God. No one, he says, has done good. Those things don't earn us salvation. They don't cause God to have favor on us. No one has done good. Before Christ, we were enemies of God. Imagine that you were driving a car, even if you're not old enough. Imagine you're driving a car. Maybe this is more realistic if you're not old enough because you don't know how to drive yet. And as you're driving down this road, it's windy, but you know you're going too fast. And as you're going too fast, it just flies off the road. You've got your seatbelt on, but it flies off the road and just crashes right into a tree. And as you're there, you're just kind of rattled. You don't know what to do. You begin to try and mess with the door to see if you can open it up, but the door is just jammed shut. The other door is jammed shut too. And then this man appears out of nowhere. He walks up to you. Reaches through the window, unhooks your seatbelt, and pulls you out of the car. And then both of you, as you stand there looking at this mangled, awful mess of a car, he says, just leave that wreck there. Come with me. We'll get you another car. This is what's happening with the Christian life. This is what happens when Christ enters the picture. He gives us the invitation to die. He invites you tonight to die to yourself. Coming to Jesus is not just about inviting Jesus into your life. Because your life is a mess. We've already discussed that. Your life is a wreck. It's broken and wrecked. And your life is wrapped up in idolatry and wickedness and selfishness and pride. At the end of chapter 5, Paul says that the law demonstrates our guilt before God and that the knowledge of sin increases when we know more about God. But God demonstrates his power over sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, we can be free from sin by the gracious movement of God's spirit upon our life. We can be free of sin because Christ died on a cross to cover that sin. In chapter 6, Paul asks a very important question, doesn't he? He says, should we continue to sin so that grace would abound? Then he follows it up with another question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now look at verse 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
What Paul is saying is this, as followers of Jesus, we cannot live under the power of sin because we've died to its power. We can't live under the power of sin because we're dead to it. We're a corpse to that power. He talks about baptism. Baptism is not just some unimportant initiation into church membership. Everyone who is submerged dies. Have you ever noticed that? If somebody took you and put you under the water in a swimming pool for five minutes, not a single one of us, unless maybe you're an Olympian, which I don't even think that's possible, every one of us would be dead. Being submerged under the waters of baptism shows that God's judgment has passed over upon you. The same judgment that passed over Christ and destroyed the life. We're being baptized into Christ's death. The chaotic waters of the flood... In the Old Testament, these are the agent of destruction. The waters of baptism is also the agent of destruction and judgment. That's why Paul says we have been buried with Christ and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Friends, following Jesus requires your death. Did you hear me? Following Jesus requires that you die. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24? He said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake... He's the one who will save it. So this call goes out on all who want to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the late 1940s, early 1940s, he said it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The call of Christ is a call to death. To deny yourself simply means to say of yourself, I don't know that person anymore. Do you remember the story in the Gospels when Peter is there warming himself next to the fire and these people begin to barrage him with questions about, Who is this man? Aren't you a Galilean? I thought I saw you with Jesus. And what does he do? He denies Jesus by doing what? He says, I do not know that man. Denying yourself means you say, That person that I used to be, he's dead to me. I don't know him anymore. I don't know what he wants. I don't want the same things that he wants. I don't desire the same kinds of accolades that he desires. I don't like the same kinds of things that that please me and entertain me as, as he did. Freedom and life only come when we lay down our pretend crowns. When we say no. And we live as though the gods that we once thought we were are dead. We must die to ourselves if we're really going to live. Maybe you've heard before how Jesus wants to come into your life. And we illustrate that with Revelation chapter 3 or 4. We, 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 we use that as a, as a way of calling people to repentance and belief. 
That Jesus wants to come into your life. That He's outside, He's knocking on the door, and He's, he's, he's wanting to come in and, and be a part of what you're doing. And we use that, but, but what happens is we begin to think that Jesus can just kind of come in and we can fix a place for Jesus in our house. We've got all of these other rooms that we kind of keep hidden for ourselves. But he, he can have the, the coffee table. He can have the recliner. And he can come in and, and then we can enjoy some relationship here with him. But these other things, we just kind of keep them hidden there in the back. Friends, Jesus is more interested in bulldozing your life than he is living in it. You know what happens? This is the gospel. Jesus says, you're dead Come, live in my life. Come, live in the life that I will give to you. Come, live with me in my life. He offers us his life. He offers us his benefits that his life gives to us. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the wondrous exchange of the gospel. That we, we get life. Jesus gets our death and we get his life. This is the wonderful news of the gospel. Look at what Paul says there in verse 4. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Christ frees us from the power of sin, he gives us new life. He gives us his life. And oh, what a life it is. Let's look at the benefits of his life. The first thing, the first statement that Paul says. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus offers you release from the fear of death. Just this last week, I preached at a funeral. And at this funeral, there were family members who were sold out for the gospel. The woman who died was a believer in Christ. But her children, many of them, didn't know Christ. And the hope that they had was crushed because all that they hoped for, all that they knew was physical life. All that they knew was this, 60, 70, 80 years of life. And once that's extinguished, it's all gone for them. And they mourn as though people who do not have hope. Friends, all of us at some point or another, whether we're, we're, we're ceasing to eat at McDonald's because we want to live longer... Oh, we have insurance plans or we decide, yeah, I'm going to go to the doctor because something hurts. All of us, we have this innate desire to live, don't we? We don't want to die. There is a fear of the unknown. There is a fear of death. But what Jesus has done through his cross, through his resurrection, is he has released us from the fear of death. Some of you here tonight are actually scared of dying. Maybe you have a disease. Maybe you have cancer that's looming over you. Maybe you have a diagnosis that the doctors have given you, but no one else in here even knows about. And you know that it's going to take you out. And there's that looming fear. When you trust 
and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins so that the curse of death is not something that will hold you down forever. And you believe that Jesus is the pioneer, the one who went before us. And he is the one that is the resurrection and the life. And that one day he will call us up out of the dirt. And we will live with him for all of eternity. When you have that kind of belief, and you trust in Christ, you're released from the fear of of death. You see, the same God that took that mangled body, that mangled corpse in a tomb in Galilee, that same, that same body that was there resting in this stone tomb outside Jerusalem, it is the same God who raised him up, invigorating him, putting life back into him. That same God is the God who will raise all of us up who have trusted in Christ at the end. This is the God that we serve. Paul says to the Colossians, you, friends, have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus offers you release from the fear of death. Jesus also, listen, Jesus also offers you death on a cross. Did you hear me? He offers you resurrection. He offers you hope. He offers you freedom from the fear of death. But then he turns around and he offers you death on a cross. Look what Paul says. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus offers to you tonight nails. He offers to you tonight a cross beam. He offers to you tonight a hammer. To crucify yourself. Crucify the flesh. Nail that squirming, God-hating part of you to that wooden crossbeam. Be done with it. Crucify it. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20. He says, For I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Invites us to die with him on a cross. Jesus also offers you freedom from the guilt of your sin. The third statement that Paul makes, he says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. If you're dead, the life that you're living, now it's not yours anymore. There is no payment for sin that's already been paid for. When Christ died on the cross for sinners and you're taken into the life of Christ, that sin is no longer something that has to have wrath poured out on it again. All of the wrath that God was going to pour out on your sin was poured out on Christ. Sin's power over you, therefore, has been destroyed and you do not have to obey its call. Jesus also offers you the foreverness and the eternality and the inheritance of his life. Isn't that amazing? You get it all in Christ. Look at the fifth statement there. He says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
You know, one of the unique things about our country is that every four years we have this shift of power. And it's done peacefully. But one of the most amazing things that happens in November all the way till January, before that one final speech is made and a new president takes office, one of the most amazing things happens. The president who's coming in, he begins to staff up his, his administration. He begins to look for people who have special skills and abilities and he begins to draw them in. He, he asks this person to do this job. He pulls this person to do this job. We live in that age. Do you realize what Jesus is doing now? Everything that we do in this life matters. Why? Because this is that November to January moment in eternity. Jesus is looking out at humanity and he's staffing up his administration. This world, this life that we're living right now, is it's emperors in training. We are to reign with Christ for all of eternity. That's what we're supposed to be training up for. So when you think about the insignificant details of your life, every single thing matters. Every job that you work, every sport that you play, every conversation that you have, all of it is preparation for who you're going to be for the rest of your life. For some reason, we as Christians have come to think of heaven as though it's just some sort of extended choir practice. Oh my heavens. Can you imagine such a thing? A choir practice that went on for trillions and trillions and trillions of year, years. Doug, can you imagine it? It would be terrible. That's not, that's not the cosmic... Reign of Christ. Oh, friends, there's so much more. We are going to reign throughout the universe with Christ. All of what is His has become ours. He doesn't just own this plot of ground in the Middle East. Israel. He doesn't just own every other continent on this one small little insignificant planet in the Milky Way. He owns every single thing in the entire universe. And all of it, he will reign over for all eternity. And right now he's staffing up. Everything in your life matters. Finally, Jesus offers you the purpose of his life. He offers you the purpose of his life. Look at that sixth statement from Paul. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Living in Christ means you have a new purpose for living. So that all of the things that you once did, all of the idols that you once worshipped at, all of those can be now formed and turned into opportunities to honor God. So serving in the nursery really matters. All those insignificant biology tests and mathematics tests, they really matter. All of the friendships that you have, working in the garden, taking out the garbage for heaven's sakes, all of it really matters because all of it now has a renewed purpose. There is an opportunity in every single thing of life to honor God with the work of our mind, with the work of our body. He is preparing you to reign with Him. Oh, friends, don't be so short-sighted.
So if these things are true, Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? Stop trying to live your life. Stop trying to live your life and instead live in Christ's life. You see, it's only in this new identity that we we can fight the temptations of the flesh. It's only with this cosmic perspective, this relationship with Christ, it's only through this that we can fight against the temptations of a temporal world. The call to resist sin is based upon what has already become reality for us by participating in the death of Jesus Christ. So the last statement that he makes, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under the law. You're under grace. You do not have to be a slave to unforgiveness anymore. You do not have to be a slave to bitterness. You do not have to be a slave to internet pornography. You do not have to be a slave to what is popular and what is stylish and what is cool. You do not have to be a slave to the pride that you have in your life and the arrogance or maybe the feelings of inadequacy. You do not have to have the power of sin in your life. Live in the new life that Christ has given you and honor God with all of it. Fight against the flesh. Friends, the way that we fight is through repentance and faith. That's how we fight the war. Some of you are here tonight. Maybe you've been around church for a really long time. But you've never met him. You've never met the one the scripture speaks of. Maybe you're here tonight because you were dragged here by a friend. And you think all of this sounds really strange. But you know there's something about this person Jesus and the spirit of God is working in your heart and there's something different you know that you want to have this relationship with Christ you feel the sense of guilt because of your sins and if you you know that if you stood before God right here tonight it'd be judgment for you this is the gospel there is a God and he created all things And all of us have rebelled against that God because we have decided to worship the things of creation instead of worshiping Him who has created all things. And you've chased your dreams and your desires instead of chasing His. You'd rather hear people talk about your name than talk about His name. And all of the worship, all of the love, all of the adoration that you were supposed to give to Him, you have turned it back on yourself. This is what the Bible calls sin. The result of sin, Paul says, the wages, the payment, the check, is death. But the gift that God gives to us is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And God wants to save you from eternal death. He wants to have mercy upon you. He sent Jesus, his perfect son, to reverse all of the consequences of sin. Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he was stapled to a Roman cross. 
And he died paying the penalty for sin. And he was raised back to life as God's glorious son. And he ascends to the heavens. And now, even tonight, he stands ready to make intercession for you. See, repentance. Repentance is not just saying, well, God, I guess he's strong and he can do whatever he wants. So I guess I'm just going to submit. That's not repentance. Repentance begins with a heart that agrees with what God says about you. That we really are as sinful as God says we are. And we really are as rebellious as God says that we are. And then it's a turning away from that life, that sin, that self-worship. It's a turning away from that and turning to Christ instead. So it's repentance and faith. And faith is saying that my life, this life, Luke Bray, it's a wreck. It's a mess. I don't want this life anymore. I want that guy's life. The one up there hanging on a cross. I want that life. And when we receive that life, we receive all of the suffering, all of the hurt, all of the shame, but we also receive the universe. You see, the way that you fight the battle, it's all about identity. It's all about knowing who you are. So are you living for your glory tonight? Or are you living for Christ's glory? You see, when the rockets begin to explode all around me, and the bullets begin to buzz by, what really mattered was that that old Luke that I used to be, that he was gone. That Luke that cared more about himself than he cared about his teammates. That Luke who didn't want to do difficult things, who didn't want to risk things. What really mattered is that that Luke was gone. It was my new identity that really mattered. Whose life are you going to live? Let's pray.